Hello and welcome to It Starts With Beer, a member of the Hopped Up Network. I'm your host, Will Sis, and on this episode we meet Nathaniel Chapman, co-author of a new book called Beer and Racism, How Beer Became White, Why It Matters, and the Movements to Change It. I uh, was joined by co-host Jamal Robinson, the sales director for New England Brewing Company in Woodbridge, Connecticut. This episode is brought to you by Labyrinth Brewing Co., located in the historic district of Manchester, Connecticut. They keep a diverse selection of beer styles on tap, as well as a healthy selection of Connecticut-made hard ciders. Their tap room is open seven days a week, and you can find their cans in package stores across the state. Your journey begins here. For more information, visit www.lbc.beer. Nate Chapman is an assistant professor of sociology at Arkansas Tech University, and he wrote the Bristol University Press published text, Beer and Racism with David Brunsma, another professor, as part of the Sociology of Diversity series. It provides historical perspective and insight from anonymous subjects of several races within the beer community to break down how craft beer has always been exclusionary, what conscious and unconscious ways this has been perpetuated and what movements are afoot to make it more diverse. The authors are white, I'm white, so having Jamal's perspective as a black man in beer was particularly enriching, plus he is just a great guy. So stick around for my thoughts on the interview at the after party. But first, here's our interview with Nathaniel G. Chapman. Let's listen in. Hey, Nate, I'm so happy that you could join me today. And uh, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well, Will. Thanks for having me. And I'm joined uh, by a co-host, which I'm really excited about. Also, Jamal, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So let's get into it. Um, Nate, I was really excited to read your book, Beer and Racism. Jamal and I both enjoyed it. I was wondering if you could give me a little bit of your background uh, as it relates to beer and uh, academia. Yeah, sure. Um, So I originally got into beer first um, when I was in undergrad uh, at College of Charleston. Um, I had done a hundred beer club at a Mellow Mushroom, a pizza place there. And the whole goal was to try as many different beers as possible and earn prizes along the way. And so, you know, what better to a you know, undergrad college student. So I I found a passion for beer and um, was really getting involved in the the culture, the trading and the online uh, sort of forums and things like that and visiting other breweries and seeking out beer. But meanwhile, you know, I was undergoing my training as a sociologist through my master's thesis and then eventually my um, dissertation and my PhD. And um, the, the really short answer is when you're in a grad program and you need to find a dissertation sometimes the 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 easy thing to do or the most interesting is the one that's right in front of you so i thought well no one has really studied beer or craft beer from a sociological perspective you're probably both aware but most of the things that had been written about beer at the time were uh, you know historical accounts or biographies or even economic accounts. Um, so there was really a, a gap there to fill as in terms of the, the scholarship or sociology of beer. So um, going through the dissertation process and learning more and more about the the industry itself and and how those pieces fit together and and how that affects the attendant culture of consumption and and what's available to consumers and how that affects consumer choices, just sort of the whole thing, a really holistic look, got me more interested. So 
after my dissertation and my first book, uh, Untapped, which is an edited volume, I um, put together collecting 12 different essays and chapters about various sociological and sociocultural aspects of beer. I started to take a more critical approach and look at issues of gender uh, first and then race as well and and noticing um you know what why the culture was the way it was why it looked the way it did and and how some of those more you know structural macro level factors may have contributed to that yeah we we uh, really appreciated the the depth that you went into and we know that this is not a breezy uh, even a breezy history book this is a sociology text which you know i i really haven't read anything something like that uh you know since college and so you know to, but for for those who are not used to reading this kind of book if you love beer uh, or you're interested in the world of beer or racism's uh uh play in it then this is this is a readable text for sure oh uh, yeah that that was certainly a, a goal of ours was to i mean when we when we approached the book proposal was you know knowing that it's an academic book um at first but also that a real audience that we wanted to meet to reach was really more the 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 engaged and involved you know craft beer drinkers so um it's difficult to do that with an academic book to reach two markets um, like that. So I, I think it's really a testament just to how beer does bring people and in this case, things and conversations together. Well, I have uh, Jamal with me who, um, for many reasons, who's an excellent uh, uh, re- person to have on as a co-host, biggest being that he's a director of sales at a brewery. So he's much more involved in the world of beer um, than I am, or he certainly has a different uh, take on it. Uh, Jamal, uh, why don't you jump in? Yeah, I mean, Nate. The uh, first of all, the book I think is a, is is pretty important. I think as a, especially timely right now. The question mm. of, you know, why aren't there more black people in beers is is a pretty relevant question, and I think this book does a really good job of of unpacking that and in a very historical and factual way. It kind of leaves a lot of opinions to the side and just kind of makes America kind of look at, okay, why, why are we here? And it's, and it's, and it's funny for me, it was like, you know, the question I asked myself too, like a, a little bit. And then, you know, and this is kind of like, oh, that's, of course, you know, it's very, it's very similar to a lot of other industries and why black people aren't in a lot of other industries, you know, is, is, is there anything that, that surprised you while, while you were writing the book? Think about what you just said to Jamal given, um, you know, that, that you are a black male in the craft beer industry and, and to hear your, your perspective and um, words about the book is is uh, is quite interesting. Um, so first, I will say um, that our intention uh, with the book was, and I think the title sort of says it all. We we changed the title um, shortly after uh, George Floyd incident, um, and we we felt that if we were going to do right by our interviewees, our respondents, um, and and truly try to help, you know, highlight and amplify these movements and these voices, and 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 to show, you know, the systemic racism in the industry that we needed to take a much more bold approach. Um, so the title is certainly reflective of that. As sociologists, we often as I tell my intro students, we seek to make the familiar strange. So this book, in my opinion, functions on a couple of different levels. For one, it, it as a strictly sociological text, it shows that we can look at these mundane objects uh, like the beer and we can see deeper structural issues of, of race, class, gender, and, and things like that, right? So uh, on one hand, it, it wasn't surprising to find out what I found out about uh, the beer industry and the craft beer culture, even through my own anecdotal experience and evidence. What was surprising was actually the two twofold. One was that during the writing was the, the surprising part was just how connected all the things were and the impact of like seemingly inconsequential things. Like for instance, you know, the union labor uh, practices of, not inviting black men to join the labor unions to work in various breweries as you know keg lifters or forklift operators or whatever and so on the surface you, you you think oh well that's just discrimination in terms of like one job industry but when you think of the impact of it being you know beer and then not having that representation in an industry what are the sort of effects of that long term and i think we're seeing that the other most 
surprising, although some of it wasn't, was the backlash of the book. Um, I think just in general, when you talk about race, racism, white supremacy, diversity, things like that, in today's climate, you are often met with a few responses. Um, one is, oh, this is great. We really need this book. This is important. We need to continue to talk about these things. Two is more of the sort of colorblind, racist, ideolo ideological view of, well, why, who cares if black people don't drink beer? Why does it matter? Black people have rap and hip hop. They don't need beer. You know, what's the who cares? Why do you have to make it cancel culture? Right. Which on just even as you say it, you're laughing as it because it is absolutely laughable. But there are so many comments that we've gotten um, and even in the preliminary phases of doing the book. When I even when I was doing my, my stuff on gender, you know, people said, who cares if girls don't drink beer? Women don't drink beer. Right. And of course, that's not the real question. Right. It's not why don't black people drink beer? Right. The question is. What structural forces have been at play and cultural forces to prevent or preclude or exclude people from participating in something? It's not simply a matter that, you know, black people don't like the taste of beer to, to make black people a monolith to just say all black people don't like the taste of Sierra Nevada or Hetty Topper or whatever, you know, is, is ridiculous. Right. So the, the thing that was most surprising was how far the backlash went uh, to the point of, you know, trolling on Twitter, uh, threatening emails, phone calls, um, a death threat or two thrown in there. Uh, we ended up on uh, an AR-15 blog, a Glock 9mm blog, which have nothing to do with beer whatsoever. So I think the surprising thing to me uh, was really just the degree to which these things, uh, when we talk about race, are connected to other issues for people. So it eventually it became not about beer and not about the book. It was just we were part of this establishment of, you know, intellectual far left, as we've been called on several uh, conservative media outlets, um, trying to cancel beer, you know, and yeah. and then eventually challenging white masculinity too, which is a huge no-no. No, I was I was going to say Jamal and I were talking about this book and and I was sharing with him that I have to admit I felt a little guilty while reading the book. I felt like, you know, that by liking beer and being part of the beer culture that, you know, I was somehow contributing to white supremacy. But as I looked closer into the book and, and, and really kind of talked it out, I realized that's not your premise. I don't, I, I didn't really get that, you know, you know, uh, titles aside, knee-jerk reactions aside, you're not here to accuse me of anything. I brought that into it by reading it right and so you know um you know that that's just a thought that i had that i had while i was reading it i kind of could see if someone didn't read it and they just read the headline that they would have that knee-jerk reaction and if you're you know prone to um, making threats over that <laughs> then it and unfortunately would lead in that direction no, I, I think what that's a that's an excellent point to bring up, Will, and I appreciate uh, your uh, honesty there. Um, is most people see the title and they stop, um, but but like you said, you know, um, you felt guilty. That's that's certainly not the the intention, right, of the book. And the book is certainly not for one calling beer itself racist or people who drink beer racist when we when we're calling when we're talking about beer and racism we're saying that there is a relationship between white supremacy and white heteronormative masculinity and systemic structural racism that is a part of all aspects of our lives and we can look at something like beer as something that we most people have in common to really highlight that um and i think most of the backlash had been more directed at the people who read the title simply and felt threatened. So what we would refer to as like white fragility. So the, the fact that you, you know, you're reading it and then you're seeing, you know, I, I really think the same of our book as any book, read it and give it a chance before you, you make up your mind because certainly beer itself isn't racist and, and anyone who the average drinker isn't racist right but that that's the point of the book is to make you feel uncomfortable we were actually um interviewed by stan hieronymus uh 
if you're familiar. Sure. Um, yeah, if you, he's a really, really great guy. But um, I, I just a side note, remember like signing him on my dissertation. Never thought I would get to meet the guy, but it was a pretty cool experience. Definitely. But, uh, you know, and, and he's one of the original guys, you know, him and like Papazian or the, some of the original writers. And, uh, you know, he wrote a review for the book and he said, uncomfortable but necessary. <laughs> and that's how that's how I view conversations about race today in general. They're uncomfortable, but they're necessary. Um, right. So. I think that's an important thing about it, you know, evolving as a society. It's it's important to to look at seriously how we got here and where we are. And when we ask ourselves these questions of why aren't there more black people in craft beer, then then we need to re, be ready to kind of look at the answer. And then instead of you know necessarily holding on to the guilt as a as a culture, as a movement, or or, or white people in general, figuring out like, huh, that's something we can freaking learn from. Let's how do we evolve that? How do we how do we change that? Because that wasn't that's not the intention. I feel like you know, and I'd love to get your opinion. But I, I feel like, you know, in, in reading this, it, it opened up it, or it just looked at a, a lot of things that people that's not necessarily pretty to look at in, in general. But is it like the, the roots of something being built away doesn't necessarily mean that's the intention or the actions of the people that are doing certain things now. So does it feel like to you like, you know, beer was kind of built off of this off of this way initially and then kind of set on autopilot and, and kind of has been running and. But then the, the culture itself, for me as a black person in the industry, not that I haven't had my run-ins with racism, but this business and this industry has given me so much. And it's it's such a cool culture and, and, and business to be a part of. And to think that something like beer can, can really transcend the bounds and bring people from different walks of life, not just race, but you know, social economical standpoints and, and, and everything, you know, from, from a housewife to a, a to a business exec, to a, a, a craft beer geek, to a hipster, you can all be sitting at the same bar, drinking the same IPA and, and talking about it. What are your, what are your thoughts just in terms of, you know, the, the industry is how it was and now you're unpacking it, but then where it is now and, and where it's going. Yeah. I, I think, um, for one, uh, the experience of, of individual drinkers um, is part of the one of the hurdles that we all have to face when we're trying to, to wrestle with deeper issues. Because, um, you know, one of the, the some of the other comments we're met with and even in our interviews is the, the well, I have black friends that like beer. So beer's not racist. Right. So. We tend to, regardless of our positionality, um, take a much more myopic sort of view to things. Um, now, you know, I think on the whole that most people who drink craft beer are generally good people and and reflect a certain value system that, you know, craft beer tries to portray, right? We think of craft beer as being this open community, a little bit more social and uh, inventive and, and innovative and things like that, right? Um, pioneering or, or cavalier, right? Um, Maverick, maybe. So what I see in uh, from our data and, and um, my experiences and in just other conversations with, with, with people is that there are these pockets of tolerance and acceptance, but the main problem I see really uh, and that we find in the book, it comes down to the three-tier distribution system. So there's obviously there's production, distribution, and then retail. But the way we we look at it in the book too is the the three sort of keys to getting we we, we stripped it down and asked what would get anyone into craft beer, and we found that regardless of race, class, or gender, access to beer, access to jobs in the industry, exposure to it through marketing. And then representation, seeing people in the industry, seeing people in tap rooms, seeing wholesale wholesale services that look like you. So what I see most often, um, and certainly reflected in our data, is you know wholesale distributors are overwhelmingly white males. And when we ask them how they got their job or their position, it's these under the table. Well, I used to work at a bar, and the distributor was getting a promotion, and so they asked me if I wanted to apply. Well, we have data and statistics that show that there's a color line in the restaurant industry that typically the darker your skin color is, the further to the back of the house you are. So that's automatically denying you access to these under the table, you know, bad hiring practices of the distributors. Right. And then if the distributor is in charge of marketing and we interviewed these distributors who say, you know, things like, well, I know that black people can't afford beer. 
So why would I waste my marketing budget, right? So you have the individuals then that have stereotypical views and prejudices about a particular group of people, and then they're going out and offering certain products. So I would say on the whole, um, I think most people are either unaware or indifferent or just don't think that there is a problem. They still operate under the assumption that black people just don't like craft beer. The the last piece of that is the spaces in which craft beer is consumed. I mean, I wouldn't walk into a you know a nightclub necessarily by myself if it was full of all black or Latinx people, right? And then try to participate in that culture without knowing some people there or knowing a bit about it, you know. And it's hard to do those things when you add in. Uh, gentrification where like a people have literally been displaced and removed from somewhere and then you have white people come in and you know create a new place there with new meaning and 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 it's your old neighborhood you know what i mean so right, right. i think craft beer has a real problem with arrogance in terms of terms of not seeing a problem um but two is they're not quite equipped or ready to make the changes necessary it seems to me that, uh, you know, a few years ago, there was a real push uh, to incorporate more women in, in craft beer. Uh, there certainly was a celebration of the Pink Boots Society. Uh, there, there seemed to be you know, real, not aggressive, but, you know, certainly a thoughtful push uh, to have more women represented. Uh, is this something that you see breweries slowly doing where, where they're saying, okay, we're going to tackle this color line problem and we're going to do something about it? Or is is any kind of incorporation of, of new races uh, something that's you know more organic and coming more from the consumer side? I would say that there's a handful of breweries who are – sort of taking a, a more um, direct approach and seeing it as, as an issue and something that they want to improve um, in terms of their customer base, but uh, also in, their, in terms of their employee base as well. Um, I think you saw a lot of backlash with founders and um, their lawsuit and everything with the copy machines a, a year or two ago, but I've also seen other breweries. Uh, I think it was Lake View or Lakefront Brewery in, uh, Brewery in Indiana that had a beer called Black Stouts Matter, you know? Um, and so there's some insensitivity there um, and just a ignorance and lack of understanding. And then the apologies of the brewers were, well, we were trying to be funny. Then when people started boycotting them and they weren't able to open their brewery, then they had a sort of change of face where, okay, we see the error of our ways. So I think there's a reluctance on the part of some to see what is really there and accept it but also um it's the ways in which they are trying to mitigate those things but i think the other part of it is a uh, lack of having that representation you know you don't know what's necessarily right or wrong and that's certainly not an excuse right but uh it, it's 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 complex i i think the other issue is that the average craft beer drinker does not see this as a problem or does not see this as an issue uh, we didn't receive any comments or backlash or anything like that from brewers that i could tell um at least not they didn't identify themselves it seems to be drinkers uh so i i think it's a little bit more complex and goes a little bit beyond it being about beer and more just in this sort of you know narrative or or thread of challenging whiteness these days um so i don't know if that quite answers your question or not jamal but uh my my short answer is breweries are not doing enough and what do you think could what do you think's next you know what what could what could breweries be doing more of to to help this and i think this is a question a lot of breweries are asking themselves i know breweries that i have personal relationships with and, and people in the industry are just like you know how do i how do i help this situation as a whole you know the brewery i work for where we've just launched a uh, working with the connecticut brewers guild and, and a number of other breweries to launch a couple of scholarships for specifically for african-americans through the the sacred heart brewing and science program and, and fundraising to be able to build an endowed scholarship to send someone there in perpetuity but then also an annual scholarship up until we build up that endowment 
But um, I think that, that 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 actual question of of is, is is something that's probably at least in in my communications and my the relationships that I have in the industry. But you know, what would your what would your advice or thoughts be for breweries that that do want to sincerely ask that question? How do we how do we evolve this? Um, I think it's something we talk about in the book as well is uh, really, again, there's three there's three phases, uh, access, representation and exposure. You know, give people access, make your spaces feel welcome um, to all people. And that, that's maybe not the easiest thing to do because you're like, well, my, my brewery's open in this neighborhood. Anybody can come in there. Right. So, you know, there's that. But then the other is exposure, exposing black people to beer. I know Ale Sharpton has taken craft beer into barbershops in Atlanta. Now breweries opening up their tasting room for, you know, uh, tastings to people or going into communities and saying, hey, you know, we just opened up in this area. You know, we'd love to, like, share some beer with you guys, that sort of thing. Um, And then others, representation. Have black people work at your brewery. Have black people in your tap room working, selling beer. Have black people working in the brewery, teaching them how to brew, uh, getting black people to distribute and market your beers as well. So I would go back to those three things about access, exposure, and representation. Sure. And you are seeing some of that from um, organizations like um Beer culture. Then we're then there's also here in our little corner of the world, there's a group of gentlemen called the Craft Crew, and yep. what they're doing is they are um, inviting people, just as you had said, to barber shops and having tastings. They are taking part in brewing beer, like for the Black Is Beautiful project. Uh, did, were they connected to um, uh, New England uh, Brewing as well, Jamal? Yep, we just did a uh, collaboration with them a couple weeks ago, uh, brewing part of our Equality IPA series, um, which is a series of IPAs, small batch IPAs that we do, and all the proceeds go to New Hallville, Connecticut. Um, uh, NCAN is a company, uh, an organization, uh, New Hallville Community Action Network, which is uh, focusing specifically on that, you know, impoverished black community that struggles from high crime rate, gang violence, drug abuse, et cetera. I, I had a question about the way that you um, went about doing research and then ultimately writing the book. You're a co-author with uh, uh, David Brunsma, another sociology professor. One of the aspects of the book that I found very interesting was that you used quotes from people who had pseudonyms that played different roles within the the beer industry. How did you go about dividing the labor with your co-host, um, your co-author, and um, you know doing that research part of the book? And then how did you go about actually you know putting it together chapter by chapter? Yeah, sure. Um, so the the division of labor actually um was easier than you might think just because uh i had been doing the beer research for a while so i was pretty versed in that and then dave my co-author had published several pieces and is the founding editor of a journal on race and race and race and ethnicity uh the sociology of race and ethnicity as a matter of fact um He's a founding member of that journal. So we thought we both like beer. Here's here's a project that needs to be done, right? So um, we kind of just approached it that way. Uh, we looked at what we had strengths in um, and what we were interested in. He was more interested in the whole historical side of it, um, and I was more interested in the, the cultural side. So we kind of divided the labor up that way. And then through the process, we would – like if I completed a chapter, I would submit it to Dave and say, hey, I want you to read through it and vice versa. Sure. I mean, it, 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 again, for, for folks who should pick up this book that I definitely recommend you do, um, you're, you're reading a different kind of book than you would say a history. Um, this really looks at, um, from a, with a real, uh, method behind it, uh, that, that is, uh, sociological in, in nature, as opposed to, um, you know, chilled out storytelling for sure. Um, but and, and and I think I kept feeling as I was reading it that there was going to be some sort of, um, I don't know, like some sort of like everything's going to get better kind of thing. And it does end on a happier note for sure, because it has to, you know, it starts out at such a, you know, from such a dark premise. 
Um, that, uh, but th- there is a positive energy to, to the ending of the book. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and, and you know, what was the feeling you wanted people to come away with when they were done? Yeah, um, I think anytime you write about something like this, you the positivity is always framed around you know what you think might come of it, um, how you can contribute to this movement, uh, this thing that's happening, this call for action, something that you're passionate about, something that you feel strongly for. So uh, it, it's easy to get a bit blinded by by that you know where we only see that and you can be blindsided by negative feedback but i think at the end of the day when we submitted the final version and we're like here's and after the title change at the end of the day dave and i are proud of what we put together for one uh two and perhaps most importantly is we we felt like we represented our informants and the people, the population we're trying to speak for to, and not, not speak for in the sense that we know what's best, but to, to provide a, a forum to have that voice amplified in places that it might not be otherwise. Really, it. We, we set out from the beginning of the book to be more storytellers than story writers. Um, sure. And that way we wanted to focus on, you know, what the people were we, we were speaking with and, and we're sharing their experience in their lives. Plus, you know, from the historical perspective, you know, the stories that were erased and, and never told or changed and edited. Um, I, we felt that that was important to really just lay out a case and let others interpret it. Um, but we set out to make that case so uh, rigorous in terms of our method and objective and um, ironclad that it would be difficult to argue with. So I guess our ultimate sort of goal was that when someone would read it, that they would certainly think differently about fear and how that relates to the dynamics of race. But more importantly, that maybe they might question other things in their lives or might, might work to, to be you know, more of an advocate for, for social justice and things like that. Sure. Nate, can you talk a little bit about how you, you know, the, the people that you interviewed for this and how you, how you find those people or, or how you choose those people in terms of, of, of capturing those stories and then retelling them. Find through a, a, a few just networks and connections that we had, we knew people who were involved in terms of like social media influencing. I, we had heard of Ale Sharpton um, and that sort of thing and uh, reached out to them and just sort of snowballed it from there. Also just, you know, going through, various blogs and things like that. But then in the historical uh, analytic or excuse me, historical and archival approach, identifying those key players throughout time. So it really was, you know, we talked to Ale and he's like, Oh, you need to talk to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so I'll set that up and get your email. And it really sort of snowballed from there. So um, I'd say Ale Sharpton was uh, a critical piece in, in terms of getting us access. Um, but yeah, then eventually when we were calling people, to, to ask if they could interview like, Oh yeah, we talked to L Sharpton or we talked to so-and-so and heard about your work. We'd love to talk to you. D- did the, uh, the informants or the, the, the folks that you interviewed, did they come uh, from throughout the United States geographically or were they kind of located in the same uh, area? Oh no, we, we tried to be as a uh, representative uh, as possible. We had people from California, Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia, Louisiana, New Mexico, all over. So we, we did our best to get as representative of a sample as we could in terms of, you know, we, we certainly wanted to talk to as many uh, people of color as we could, but also female voices, but we needed white voices as well, particularly when you look at something like, you know, brewers or the wholesale distributing industry is predominantly white. So it's going to be difficult to find, you know, a, a black voice or a Latinx or Hispanic voice there. So we, we tried to be as thorough and diligent as possible in getting the most representation in our interviewees as possible, but also working within those limitations and boundaries that, you know, are, are a product of the industry. 
That's cool that they were able to give you such good material, not even knowing what the end product would be about. You know, I remember, I remember, I know reading like classics like from Studs Terkel, you know, writing about Chicago and, and, you know, I'm sure that when they talked to Studs Terkel, they would say, you know, I have no idea what you're going to do with this, but, you know, I trust you. You know, were you kind of getting that kind of vibe from the people you talked to? They didn't know what kind of book this was going to end up in, right? We, we always came and told people first and foremost that like, look, we're coming objectively. We don't have our mind made up. We're, we want to hear your side and your opinions to be open and honest, you know? So it's, uh, really remarkable that people felt comfortable enough to talk in the, those settings and, and be so open and open with us. But I think our intention, just as social, social sciences, our intention as well as our training and our duty is to, to be as objective as possible. So um, we didn't ask like leading questions or things like that. We really just asked more open-ended, like, tell us sort of what you're asking me, you know, tell me about your experience as a black man distributor uh, or tell us about your experience as a white brewery owner, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I tell you, it's one of these, one of these, one of these books where, you know, those perspectives and, and the honesty and, uh, and, the, and the in-depth look at it, I think, again, is, is important for us to, to figure out how to move forward. I think there's some things in there where, again, for me, it was just like, it felt a little obvious as, as reading through, but you didn't, I didn't think about it in the same way or, or, or dive into it or unpack it as deeply and it's and it's interesting. Yeah, I, I appreciate I appreciate that. That was certainly our 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 intention, and and uh, you know, um, we tried to through our networks get in touch with as many people, those voices as possible. Um, but but one thing uh, that that's a bit telling is there's really two reasons why we don't get access. Like we we tried to to interview Garrett Oliver for for example. He is actually, which I, I will invite you all, um, and, and if Will, if you'll send me an email to remind me, we're speaking at the Beer Culture Summit um, next week, virtually, Zoom, and uh, David and I are going to give an overview of the book for about 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, have a Q&A, and then immediately following, we're having a open uh, town hall panel discussion that David and I are moderate with Garrett Oliver, Ale Sharpton, Alex Kidd, aka Don't Drink Beers. And then um, Charlotte Shepard, owner of Bow and Arrow um, out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So um, if you if you remind me and send me a, uh, an email, Will, I'll send you all that link information if you care to join that. But, oh, I would definitely. You know, awesome. Yeah, I would love you know, to. So like Garrett, Garrett Oliver being the seminal figure he is, access to him is not just given, you know. Um, so right. it, it, it was telling in a way because, for one, there's just not that many people to inter- interview. But two, and um, I, I can't say names of who all we, we interviewed, obviously. Some of them, uh, most people didn't mind, but just for the sake of institutional review board materials. But, you know, you had some people who were like, I saw an email from two white guys asking me about beer, and I deleted it. You know? <laughs> and, 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 that, and, and then we would email back and say, hey, we just spoke with Ale Sharpton, and you know, Ale or L.A. McRae, we spoke with her as well. Um, you know, some of these more seminal figures, and they're, they're like, oh, okay, well, you're, we can see that where you're coming from is, you know, legitimate, right? That you're not, right. uh, I mean, I'll just use this as an example of it. You know, like Campus Reform, if you're familiar with them, message just about the book, right? And so when you get, when you're involved in some sort of movement to change anything, and you you have people from the outside that seem uninitiated or unaware of what's going on, you're you're skeptical, right? And I, I certainly understand that. So I think it was a real test for us to find the ways to to portray what our true intentions were in a way that you know showed showed for what we were doing. That we're we're not trying to have a gotcha moment or anything like that. We're really just exploring what's here and trying to uncover we didn't we didn't have any preconceived notions or or conclusions so i think you asked about surprises i i think what we found like the depth of it wasn't necessarily surprising but the reach and the impact of it maybe was mm-hmm. more surprising so i i know that's kind of a, a lot of answers on one there jamal and will but um it, it's it's a little bit more difficult to answer that way i would say if we could write the book again and we knew now, like, how to get in touch with these people because, uh, I mean, one example is I've, I've never had Twitter before. I had to get a Twitter account to, to 
try to reach these people for the book or Instagram or whatever. So it, it, that's a challenge, I think, in any project you're doing nowadays is, is how to reach your subject, you know, um, your population that you're trying to study with, you know, uh, given quarantine and COVID restrictions, but also in the, in the world of social media we live in where people do troll or people don't have the best intentions always. So um, right. I think it's really a testament of like our message and what, and the people that we're trying to speak for that we were able to get access to the people that we were. So what's next for the professors? Are you going to be uh, continuing on this uh, track? Are there more avenues to explore? Um, I think, turning uh, to you, because we were actually just having that conversation. I think for me uh, and, and David, um, just in general in academia, you know, you you get really into a research topic and, you know, not, that doesn't always manifest itself in the form of a monograph, a book. Sometimes it's a, a peer-reviewed journal article, but uh, given the format, you know, the journal article, you know, 20 to 30 pages or whatever, you can only do so much. So a book offers you, affords you more latitude to really explore something to go into a deeper dive so I, I would say in writing the book for every question now we thought we answered we probably uncovered two or three more research questions um, right. so there's every chapter I would say in the book we have we have a document that we're working in and they're just things that you just don't have enough time to get into and I don't know that writing a second book would do that. I, I think perhaps we will carve off some of those separate research questions into um, various chapters, conference presentations, and things like that. Um, our goal is to, to further collaborate. Uh, Anthony Kwame Harrison, who wrote the foreword, has done extensive work. He's an anthropologist at Virginia Tech on uh, hip-hop and hip-hop culture. Um, so having him write the foreword as one of my mentors was, was a cool experience, but also I have been a, I'm a music scholar as well, so I'd like to find ways to like link the two. So one one project that I'm very interested in is the linkage between uh, malt liquor, hip hop, and now craft beer. So looking at the history and legacy of malt liquor, the the marketing towards um, low income urban black neighborhoods, but then like how all these white breweries like Monkish in L.A. has you know. Socrates philosophies uh, hypotheses is the name of one of their beers. I mean, and if you like Wu-Tang, you get it, right? But right. does the average craft beer drinker know who the Wu-Tang clan is or that that was Rizza, not Jizza or whatever, you know? Right. So right. there's these little nuanced things, right, that make it difficult. So I would like to look at that. But after that, um, as far as plans, I don't think we have any concrete research plans or goals right now um, because uh, we – presenting at the beer culture summit then we're hopefully going to be presenting at cbc so uh, i imagine some of that will open up other opportunities and then our normal academic lecture conference circuit right now i think we're still in the digestion um take a breath mode will where we're we're, we're trying to see where this is going to take us before we <clears throat> try to move on at least in terms of beer scholarship we certainly have our other irons in the fire and other things like that but um the beer stuff we we, we might need to let that sit for a second <laughs> I'll tell you, you could go, you could go pretty deep with that. The malt liquor piece was um, one of the more interesting parts of the whole thing to me because, you know, understanding what that is, but it's it's different to unpack it and look at the the ramifications of it long term and and how that really affects those communities and 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 then you know and the, the same nostalgia I've seen where I have friends that are like, oh, I drink Miller High Life because my dad drank Miller High Life, and then when you talk about that generational pass down of a, of a certain thing from from generation to generation in a, in a black community and it's malt liquor and something that's actually hurting the community in a lot of ways. It's, it was, uh, I, I hadn't, I hadn't looked at it so deeply in that way before it was, it was, it was pretty enlightening uh, to a lot of things, especially like the, the cultural taste versus the habitus part, you know, it was, that mm. part was like, huh, interesting. Can you like, I know those terms are a little weird, but can you like throw those in the layman terms real quick for the people that would listen or haven't, haven't read the book? I, I got to say, first and foremost, I'm really uh, pleased that you mentioned that, Jamal, because um, that was a, a thing uh, 
Dave and I were going back and forth about that part because I, I wrote that chapter because I'm more of a cultural sociologist and, and Bordeaux scholar to a degree, I guess. So it's funny. I'm gonna we're keeping score on that chapter, and I just got a point. So I'm gonna let him know that <laughs> um, that that you liked that chapter. But um, really, what what that chapter is about uh, the layman's terms, a habitus is is really. It's the things you do, meaning your habits, uh, your everyday life, from the things you consume and, and the, the, like the way you dress and, and style your hair, where you work, your education. It's it's sort of like your everyday life, right? But but what we're doing is saying is that is situated within and constrained or limited by your social class position. So the the convenient example is. In the 1980s, they'd done a study about uh, music appreciation to try to determine if there was like differences between like elite level consumption and more popular consumption. So the, the classic example is Beethoven versus rock music. Well, ask yourself, like, it's not anything natural that one would like one or the other. But what it is, is how does one develop a taste for Beethoven? How does one develop a taste for rock music right and that's what the habitus is informed by that social class position if you're never exposed to crap beer if you're never exposed to beethoven if all you see at the liquor store or the corner store is malt liquor then in in your minds that's all there is right so your tastes are actually formed out of necessity or a lack of products available to you right so um the habitus is the ways in which we negotiate our class position and we use distinction to make distinctions between different products and that that reflects our our cultural taste if that helps yeah yeah absolutely it's it's um, i'll tell you this too jamal sorry to cut you off but explaining that in layman's terms is almost as hard as explaining it in actual (laughs) borduzian terms he's notoriously difficult to to read and to interpret so that's why there's usually big block quotes following his name i think he thought i'll write this so convoluted no one could possibly paraphrase it <laughs> well i think it's an important thing to to look at because it's, it's it's not a natural thing it's almost like one of those things like you get high and you're like huh why do i like you know rap music versus the other thing versus my exposure to something and is that influence my decision but i think those are those are interesting things to get people's kind of juices going. And when you look at something like malt liquor, it's it's got long-term, again, long-term ramifications in that community to now it's, um, you know, higher alcohol, lower taste, and at the price point where it's like it's built out of, people are drinking it out of necessity and the ease for it. And then, and then, then it's like seeing the niche for that, for that consumer to be able to have that. Now it's like pushed on them and, and forced on them. And that that's a generational transfer it, it goes long term it's it uh it kind of blew my mind to look at it that way so it was a very cool way to to address that and to show people that piece of it i think yeah i just add one thing to that too uh you, you know you it, it's sort of like i was talking about um like if i was going to drink a beer with my dad it is to him beer is one thing right, right. beer is, is bud light you know and it always has been and always will be right so the way we draw distinctions when we're experienced and exposed to other products other goods so imagine if i hand my dad you know a bourbon county barrel-aged stout and then if he looks at that compared to a bud light the only way he's going to be able to compare it is by the color well that one's darker than this one so you often see like you know um older people uh refer to beer that's not their beer as dark beer because the only distinction they can make is based on the color they don't have the cultural capital the language to discuss and describe and then eventually draw distinctions between styles of beer if you ask them why they like bud light they will tell you it's because it tastes good they don't know what makes it taste good or how it compares to other beers they just know they like it so now insert malt liquor into that instead of bud light why do you, why does someone like Colt 45 better than Hurricane or, you know, um, Schlitz? I can answer that. It works every time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And when you have a guarantee like that, when Lando Calrissian gives you a guarantee that it works every time, blowing up Death Stars and whatever needs to be done, it's hard to argue. Our thanks to Nate Chapman. His book is available on Amazon or wherever you buy books. 
You can follow him on Twitter at Beer and Racism. His Beer Culture Summit Talk, November 12th, is being sponsored by the Chicago Bruseum. Uh, so still waiting for some uh, info on that. I just know that the talk itself is going to involve Garrett Oliver, uh, Alex Kidd, Ale Sharpton, and he's going to, they're of course going to talk about their own book. 5.45 Chicago time. You can go to chicagobruseum.org for more information. Hey, welcome to the after party. Pull up a bright pink throw pillow and have another beer. I'm sipping on the dregs of a rhythm brewing lager in the red can. And so, yeah, it's a, a lovely lager, a little more bitter than most, and that's okay because I'm feeling a little more bitter than most. Um, but, you know, we don't have to dwell. We don't have to dwell on the bitter. Uh, you know, for episode 40, which this was, kind of a landmark, so Jamal and I had a little back and forth with trying to schedule this interview with the authors. It was going to be with two authors, and then it was with Nate. And, um, yeah, it was interesting to find out just when we were trying to do that, they were being harassed, apparently. So um, that's horrible. I'm sorry to hear that just because of a title that people were giving them a hard time. I think, yes, when people see beer and racism, uh, when they talk about white spaces and exclusion and you know, all this, uh, there is a tendency to get defensive. But man, you do not have to take it to the level of trolling or threatening. So don't quite get that. Having a tough week, not going to lie. Uh, work is tough. The nation is on edge. But on the other hand, my daughter is chattering away in her own language. Using tea a lot. La, la, ta, ta, ta. Very cute. Well, I think it's cute. Um, she was uh, crawling along. Uh, I have a dog who's four, and <laughs> she, they were little roughhousing a little bit, so we got to watch that. I'm going to be meeting with Dana Bork, uh, the founder of Firefly Hollow Brewing, along with their head brewer. They're in Bristol, Connecticut, so that should be the next episode. Very excited to do it in, you know, on-location interview. Glad to have Labyrinth Brewing on board as a sponsor. I truly appreciate their sponsorship if you would like me to advertise something on it starts with beer you can email me at beer.snob at yahoo.com yeah let's work something out upcoming episodes include an interview with tony russo of beer with strangers podcast which is really clever if you haven't listened please check out beer with strangers and uh, later on, uh, author Tara Nuren. So that's pretty much what I got going on. And I hope things are going well in your universe. Until next time, sip well. One, two, three, four. <laughs>